Yes. I'm at work today, so there's less cat interference. So hopefully, it's <laughs> oh, good for the sound. There are cats that'd be weird, at least for my clinic. So, <laughs> but, but fun. Maybe we need cats. Maybe that's what's missing. <laughs> Usually, we do not have cats at clinic. <laughs> we did have a patient bring a monkey one time. And then Ooh. we had to make a rule about no <laughs> monkeys are allowed oh, wow. in clinics. Never dull. Primary care, you never have a dull moment. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is the truest truth. <laughs> like I, 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 the song, uh, no more monkeys in the clinic. <laughs> <laughs> in the clinic. <laughs> Forget about jumping on the bed. In the clinic. Five little monkeys jumping on the bed. One fell off and bumped his head. Mama called the doctor and the doctor said, No more monkeys jumping on the bed. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Grace Pratt, the production editor, and I am joined by our full contingent of co-hosts today. I am so excited. After months of sabbaticals and illnesses and trips, like we are all here and we're personally, I'm feeling a little bit spicy about our topic today. And so I know that we are in for a really good conversation um, all about how we talk about and a lot of how we correct misconceptions about what we do in integrated care. Um, I think if you listen to or were at our live show um, when we were talking about advocacy and like connecting with legislation, this is going to connect back for you. If you didn't, I encourage you to go pull that episode and listen to that audio that we released. Um, but regardless of that, uh, we are going to have a great conversation today, whether you are advocating in big ways or small ways or any way in between, got to learn to talk about what we do. Uh, but before I get to that, we are going to do our introductions. And I have to say, um, so I don't know if you guys know what a Kahoot is. Have you heard of this? A Kahoot? Yeah. It's like yeah. a quiz game, mm-hmm. sort of. So my oldest son, Henry, who just turned eight, decided to have a Kahoot themed birthday party and he made his own kahoot with questions about minecraft and axolotls and physics and robotics and all the things that he loves and we did a kahoot and it was honestly a blast and so when it was time to plan like our residency changeover potluck with our new ones coming in and our old ones going out I was like I'm gonna bring Henry's kahoot idea and so with all of our staff and all of our residents and all of our faculty I got them to tell me my prompt was simple what's something most people don't know about you and then I used a random generator to like get pick, pick the wrong answers out of everyone and it was so fun the things that people came up with um the things that we learned about each other the most commonly correct answer was like 38% of us got it right so it was really fun and so anyway that's prompted me to bring that icebreaker question to you this morning what is something that most people don't know about you um so we will go around the circle i'm actually going to go uh you know well, I guess we are on YouTube now. Maybe some people can see us, although I don't think you see the whole circle. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm going counterclockwise just to give Bridget a little more time. Uh, so we're going to start with Jen Thomas. 
oh, you picked me first. I was like, wait, I need to think. I need to think about my icebreaker. That's fine. That's, that's classic. No, it's fine. So I'm Jen Thomas, family medicine, a medical director of integrated behavioral health at Morris Hospital, Morris, Illinois, Northern Illinois. So uh, what is something most people don't know about me? That's a tough one. I don't know. I mean, I guess I kind of have like a little domestic hat. A lot of my coworkers are like, oh, you're, you're doctors, so you're nerdy science stuff. And like, I like to make pies. I like to plant flowers and garden and do all that like domestic stuff. Um, <laughs> so I think that kind of comes as a surprise to some of my coworkers of like, yeah, I can make you a really solid mocha pecan pie if you want one. <laughs> um, Ooh, I was just yeah. going to ask what your specialty yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. And fabulous. that was, my husband, Matt always says that was the most selfish Christmas gift he ever got me. He got me this book. It looks like an encyclopedia. It's called pie. Um, it's probably three inches thick. And um, so I'll just pull out that book and somebody somewhere wrote a fantastic recipe and we'll just try that. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. So I like to make pies. I don't think most people know that about me. So maybe that's a lame one, but here we are. <laughs> now, oh, you know, <laughs> I love that. And now I super wish we were in person. So you can, I know you can try it. Podcast. We'll, yes. we'll do it. We'll like bake, I'll uh, ship you a piece or something. <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, next on our roundup here is Monica Williams Harrison. Hello, everybody. Monica Harrison, like a clinical social worker, clinical trainer, practice coach for the AIM Center. I'm trying to think what I have not shared because <laughs> I share everything. I don't know how to have a code book. So usually my go-to, because I am Black, most people don't know that I actually clock because that is stereotypically not something that Black individuals do. Um, so I'm going to go with that one. I was trying to think if I had shared that before, and I can't remember if I did or not. So I don't think I have. So I clogged. Wait, can you, can um, you explain that? Yeah. Oh, when did you pick that up? Fourth grade in Oklahoma. Um, so I, um, military brat, so family moved around all the time. And when we were in Oklahoma, it was just like what all my friends were doing when we moved there. And so I was like, okay, well, I want to do, you know, you want to hang out with your friends. So I was like, well, and actually stuck with it. Stopped doing competitions and stuff probably the end of middle school um, because then, you know, traveling every three years, military, you move. And so it's a new thing in a new place. Um, but still had clogging shoes, still can clog. Um, it is not like tap dancing. The shoes you wear, the buckles on the bottom are different. So it's a different sound. But it is also not river dancing. That's the other thing I thought I've got. Ah. That is different. But yeah, so I clogged. That's awesome. What kind I of music? Yeah, what's the background? Like what what music do you do? Is any anything or actually my favorite um is this routine. I don't know if my parents still have a copy of it, but it was this routine that we did to wipe out. I don't know if you I mean that's yeah, just, yeah. That's the, kind of song, the big drums. There's yeah. this routine. <laughs> yeah. So it's this routine that we did to wipe out that's actually my very, very favorite. I don't know that I have the um leg capacity to go as fast as I used to because I'm older now but that's my absolute favorite oh my gosh if you could dig that up Monica but I thought there was an extra (laughs) embedded fact in there for me I did not realize that you had lived in Oklahoma yeah yeah well you know so military families typically every three years you move to a different military base um and so both of my parents were in the military and so we spent some time in Lawton Oklahoma um, so I can sing the O-K-H-A-L-O. Uh, yeah, so 
Yeah. <laughs> That's how my kids learn to spell Oklahoma as the song. Cause it's not just from the musical. It's actually also our state song. Now, when you go to Oklahoma ah. State, like I did, when they play it at like the football games, you go, okay, L-A-H-O-M-A. And then you go, state. Really? Uh, yeah. And so that's like my little, you know, teaching them at the end, they go stink. So, you know, just a little indoctrination, no big deal. <laughs> Got to steer them on the right path. Hey, <laughs> of course, everyone I work okay. with just about went to OU. So I'm the little lone state school holdout. Uh, anyway, moving on. <laughs> Next, we have Bridget BG. I'm Bridget Beachy, and I'm a clinical psychologist by trade and work as a BHC director of behavioral health in the state of Washington a wonderful federally qualified health center. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was kind of feeling like I was in Monica's boat as far as like what people don't know about, you know, some of the main ones would be like, oh, that I have a lizard, but everyone knows that now. Or that I'm from Northeast Ohio. And that's why I have an obsession with LeBron James. Everybody knows that. Uh, I played two sports in college, basketball and softball. Most people know that at this point. But one of the ones that, and this is, I guess, a self-described I still, to this day, based on the definition of what I've seen with the definition of competitive, I don't think that I'm competitive, which everyone tells me is crazy uh, because they're like, you're the most competitive person I know. But for me, it's never like, I don't have a problem losing. Maybe that's what it is. I don't have a problem losing. As long as I did my best yeah. and I was the best version of myself, then that's what it is normally for me. I'm competing against, I guess, myself. So like yeah. in clinic, we joke around of like, oh, who had the most patience and stuff like that. And so people are like, oh my gosh, so if Dave beats you, does that bother you? And like, as long as I gave it my best go and my best was 14 patients and he saw 15, it doesn't bother me one bit. So losing does not bother me as long as I brought my best self. Yeah. You strive for excellence. Do you ever go competitive, like, you just, oh, give it last all. week. <laughs> Right. But do you ever go like, oh, last week I had 15. Oh, I only got 12 this week. Oh, let me try to I'm still competitive. I it's more with myself. It's more like if I that, saw that, 12. Oh. That is good. Yeah. Yeah. If I saw 12 and then like last week I saw 15 and I kind of felt like there was, you know, I still had gas in the tank. I would have been like, man, Bridget's what can I do? She's just reached the level. She's so good that she can be her only competition. There's yeah. no one else <laughs> in the ring. The mountaintop. You know, she's she's like, uh, what, what would we say? She's kind of like the- She's like LeBron. <laughs> of, you know, BHCs. You oh, know, oh. Dance herself, you know. Honestly, he beats me all the time at all kinds of things. And it, it doesn't, it really doesn't bother me. Like it's- like, I'm not competitive with them. Honestly, uh, that's probably for the best. I don't see how you guys could uh, no. be married and be working together and be collaborating on all of these things if there was, like, a bitter competition between you. Yeah, I mean, people You do you. Everyone is their own people, but. I'm not. I, I, you know, I wish his success is my success. And yeah. um, you're a great team. <laughs> okay, next we have Neftali Serrano. Well, it's good to be back on the podcast, everybody. I'm Neftali Serrano, Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. And uh, I've been fascinated listening to the rest of you. It's just been great to, to learn these little nuggets about you. I still have this, this image of Monica clogging, and I've, I've, I feel like we've got to have a talent show at the conference and <laughs> just have people do stuff. Uh, that would be so awesome. That's great. Um, so 
you know, something people may not know about me, and it relates to why my voice sounds the way it is right now, is that I enjoy yelling at children. And that's why my voice is, is uh, you know, uh, you know, not sounding so great this morning, a little bit, a little bit Barry Whitish, perhaps. So we have a community swim team. And my wife and I typically serve as the clerk of course for the swim, the home swim meets. That involves really just yelling at children for three hours straight. Uh, if you can imagine, especially, oh my God, I've, I've learned so much about the difference between uh, boys' development and girls' development. Because if you have any eight and under boys and you compare them to any group of eight and under girls, clerk, of course, is perfect because obviously every event is gendered, right? So <laughs> you'll see the, the girls. And they are able to reasonably follow directions, listen to you, listen to what's coming up. A clerk, of course, if you don't, not a swim person is like, that's where you organize all the kids in seats so that they get ready to go to their blocks to swim. And so they have to be in certain order um, and they have to sit and they have to keep moving forward in these rows of seats to get to swim. And the eight and under girls can do that. They will listen to you. And in fact, they will actually help each other. Like, oh, you're supposed to move up now. You know, they're talking to each other. The eight and under boys, I'm telling you, my daughter, who's the head coach of the team, she, she described, she says, they've got sawdust for brains. That's what she says. Yep. <laughs> can be like, like that. You can look at them. I'm literally, I'm looking at them. I'm literally yelling. I mean, that's, you hear my voice, right? I'm looking at them eye to eye. And I'm like, do not move until I tell you to move. That's not going to work. Do not Come move on. until I tell you to move. And of course, I tell some other row to move. There they go, moving up, you know, without me telling them to move. And that that is why my, but I love it. And I, I enjoy it uh, because I get to know all the kids in the neighborhood. Um, it's so fun to mess around with them. Uh, they they end up having a great time through the, they, they, they conquer a lot of their fears through the swimming and, and you know, uh, the competition. So it's really cool and fun, but it, it does take a lot out of me. Mm-hmm. Listen, I live with four eight and under boys, and they, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Listen, it is, it is very, I got to get eye to eye and say it over and over and over. Yeah. And then sometimes still, right. you know. Yeah, in one ear out the other. They're mm-hmm. they're too busy making fart jokes and, <laughs> you know, poking each other right. to, yes. to listen. Oh <laughs> but my that's gosh. all right. Listen, if I hear... <laughs> If I hear one more thing and the hysterical laughter that comes every time one of them says ball, I'm so over it. Let me just tell Being you. A fart <laughs> my son told me a good one last night, my eight-year-old. What do you call a dinosaur's fart? What? A blast from the past. Nice. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. You, know, you come for the integrated care content. You stay for the eight-year-old. You get, you get everything. Yes. Okay. I'm going to, I got, I got to round this out. Uh, so I'm Grace Pratt. I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Integris Great Plains Medicine and Family Medicine Residency Program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where I both train residents and supervise behavioral health students um, in our earliest learners of integrated care. And I, my little known fact, this, I cheated because I thought of this last week, uh, but I took welding in high school to raise my GPA. There was a big Votech push at my school in rural Texas, and I was taking Latin the fall of my senior year to like get an edge up on my ACT scores and all of this. And then I realized, oh, wait, 
I can take welding and actually get more grade points for that because it's weighted more heavily than Latin. So I switched and thank goodness I had a friend who's like family owned a farm and she had gear and everything because the shop and the gear of the high school boys in Mount Pleasant, Texas welding shop was not, it would not have been worth the grade point boost, but Ashley came in clutch and I wore her stuff. Uh, but I have to say, let's see if I can talk about this without gagging. The most visceral memory that I have is that, again, this is rural Texas. We're out in the Votech building. We're in the shop. So guys are all dipping and they used to spit their dip into the water where you had to put your metal in to cool it off and the fumes that would come off as you're pulling out that disgusting metal out of the dip like it still makes me gag to this day almost 20 years later I have to say so you're welcome for that imagery (laughs) renaissance woman welding Uh, weld in latin how do you say welding in latin grace Uh, you know what (laughs) I I can neither weld nor speak latin is the end of that story high school's the best right stuff you use (laughs) you dabble in everything it was great I think what happened was the shop teacher was also the director of all of the like ag um like they had ag competitions and stuff and some of them were more like brain power things so he recruited me to participate in these competitions and in exchange he gave me an a in welding which i did not earn so (laughs) there there are guys like building full trailers to use on their family farms in one part of the shop and i'm like trying to cut a straight line (laughs) in a little piece of scrap metal it was an adventure for sure that's Um, great yeah so something most people don't know about me. I cannot well uh, or speak Latin, but I did both in high school. Uh, okay, we got to move on. Uh, well, first, are there news and notes, Naftali? Uh, yes, just a quick one here. Uh, obviously, uh, those of you who are on the uh, CFAJ listserv know that we have launched our uh, conference registration for the fall. So uh, for more information, those of you out there can check out integratedcareconference.com. We've just published the session um, schedule, so you get to see at a glance all of the sessions that are available, and it's awesome. I mean, like the list of presenters is ridiculous. The topics run the gamut of just about everything you can kind of think of, um, so really great content. So integratedcareconference.com. The other uh, quick news and note item is those of you out there should know this name because she's awesome. She's such a key leader in the field, uh, Stacy Obide. And Stacy has put together a uh, continuing education for us um, on clinical supervision skills. And so that's available on our website. For that, you'd go to our main website, cfha.net, and uh, go under the learning and uh, networking tab. And you'll find her course there. It is a fantastic opportunity. Stacy is a great teacher to really bone up your skills with clinical supervision in PCBH. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully this won't make you yell again. But <laughs> for our topic today, we are going to talk about messaging and communication around integrated care. So like I said at the top of the show, on our live show, we were talking about advocacy and the importance of advocacy and what that can look like. And the takeaway from that whole live show for me, and what I'm learning more and more in my work in other areas around advocacy, is that it happens at every level. 
And so Naftali came across this video that he shared with our podcast team from the New Hampshire House of Representatives. And it's a committee meeting of the Commerce and Consumer Affairs Committee. And they're talking about a, a, a bill or measure that would essentially endorse primary care behavioral health and endorse integrated care. And we're going to listen to a snippet of it now. And then we're going to like kind of really broaden out the conversation about what happens when we're communicating about what we do. Because as we know, despite like the huge growth in what we do and the whole mission of CFHA, there's still a lot of confusion sometimes about what integrated care even means. And if we're going to be advocating for ourselves, we have to talk and communicate both at the system level and the legislative level and everything in between. So we're going to listen to a clip of this, and then we will talk about it and also broaden our conversation to thinking about like advocacy and communication at a large scale. Just to set stage for those of you in uh, audio podcast land, uh, just picture a room, uh, a U-shaped table with a bunch of county uh, 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 representatives um, around the table looking tired and haggard. They are three hours into their meeting. And now this issue about integrated care comes up. And uh, yeah, here we go. So, John, why don't you come up and take a seat? Yeah. If I understand this correctly, that a primary care physician would be consulting with a psychologist and the psychologist says, yes, Xanax is recommended, then the primary care physician, because they have the right to order prescriptions, could then order that prescription drug for a, a patient. Thank you, Mr. Chair. The, a psychologist is not licensed to prescribe medication. So they can't do that. So they would not, if a psychologist felt there was a medication assessment that was needed, they would refer the primary care physician to a psychiatrist. So they would refer to, they would, they would suggest the primary care physician speak with the psychiatrist through the collaborative care model, which is a different model, but similar. So why, why is it some people think that it, it looks like a psychologists are involved in prescription drugs with this bill? Why has that been accusation been made by the psychiatrist? Well, I've spoken to the psychiatrist and have not heard that. Talking point. I can tell you that there is there is nothing in here that suggests that psychologists are or requests psychologists be involved in prescribing medication. It's just it's not part of their scope of practice. Okay. So why do we need this bill? Wait a minute. So Representative Calabro, you have very strong opinions. I think. Yeah, I've actually experienced this, and it, it de-escalates situations and it prevents patients from going into the emergency room using resources that would otherwise have gone to somebody in an actual emergency need. So if I'm sitting here with a patient who's at PQ, PHQ's No, I'm a provider. We've had somebody room. They've got a behavioral emergency with a PHQ score, all right, of, of an elevated number. It lets me know this person has an is at an elevated risk for a behavioral emergency. Every single person in medicine knows how to deal with that, okay? We all have protocols about what we do. We either send them to the emergency room or, God bless, we have somebody on call. We can call them down to help and de-escalate the situation. So I'm not sitting with that patient for 40 minutes. I'm, st I'm staying on time. So why isn't this already occurring? Why, why do we have this legislation? everywhere. So why do we need this legislation? Because apparently they haven't gotten a clue. Who? I would say the insurance companies. So you're saying the insurance companies are refusing what? 
what did they refuse, Representative Fiala? But the true question is the problem here then that the psychologist lacks a billing code to be able to bill for their time if the primary care physician does that referral for that. We mean lacks billing time, billing code. And let's say the primary care physician does that quick referral for a de-escalation to the psychologist. Is the problem here then that the psychologist lacks a billing code for that quick referral on for that de-escalation time? So, John, did I respond, Mr. Chair? Yes, and thank you for the question. So there's, there's multiple problems here. They, they, the problem the representative was speaking to is the urgency of the situation. It's an emergent situation. And either a professional needs to be available to engage with the client to de-escalate them, hopefully de-escalate them, or they're going to be in an emergency room or an inpatient unit. That's the, that's the urgency of the issue. The, in terms of the billing codes, so when we started this process, we reached out to Anthem and we reached out to Point32. We've had a number of conversations and those conversations have continued to some extent and they've picked up over the last couple of days. Anthem first forwarded to my client a list of billing codes applicable to psychiatrists and psychologists. The consultation codes were applicable to psychiatrist contracts. They were listed as not applicable to psychologist contracts. So we raised that with Anthem and Anthem told my client that that was a surprise to them that they believed that psychologists could be billed, could bill for these codes. The problem is we've been having this conversation since October, November, and really haven't, haven't gotten any clearer resolution about whether psychologists can or cannot bill for consultation. That's why my client did a survey with practicing psychologists in the field. 86% of the psychologists who responded said that they either did not bill for consultation codes or were denied for consultation codes. When, we, when they were asked, why didn't you bill? Most of them were told that historically they've been denied for consultation codes and they stopped billing because it wasn't worth the effort. Now, Insurance, I don't come here a lot for good reason. Insurance is a very complex issue, and you folks are the experts on that. I believe that Anthem and Point32, in good faith, told us they believe these should be covered. But I do know from my clients that they are not covered. I can't bridge that divide to know where the truth lies. All right, there you have it. <laughs> yeah. So many, so... so many layers. I know. I, I want to start by just kind of letting us react a little bit because there is a lot there. So I'm curious to hear your reaction. Also want to uh, just encourage our listeners. We'll put the link to the full video and like the timestamps because it's a five hour long committee meeting. We'll put the timestamps and the show notes and like later the insurance representatives come up. There's a bunch of he said, she said. Anyway, uh, there's more to see there, but I think this gave us a great starting point. So what are some of our reactions from our panel members here? Well, I think to our level set a little bit for us, you know, so there's this issue and this happens a lot where, you know, you have supposedly a way for to build something and it's hard to get everybody involved on the same page related to can we build, can we not build and to get a straight answer. And so in this case, this gentleman had, had been at this for, I think it was over a year and a half, trying to clarify, just try, just try to clarify, can we bill, can we not bill? And then the insurance company is saying, well, yeah, no, we think you can bill. But then 
on the other hand, they're they're serving people, the clinicians, and they're not getting bill, uh, paid for the codes, right? And and that that I think is is a point that people should understand that a lot of times there are rules, and it's not even the rule that's the problem, but it's actually the mechanism by which the rule is is um, carried out. So that could be like another arm in Anthem or the insurance company or the state Medicaid system, if you're talking about that, that just doesn't um, know or doesn't have a mechanism for enforcing that rule, um, doesn't have processes to audit and make sure that that's being carried out, et cetera. And so it's not a rule issue. It's just a, it's a process issue that, you know, is at play. So that's one of the, one of the things happening here. The other thing is that um, you see how, how the general public has really very little knowledge of like, even just the guilds and what, what they do and what they don't do. Right. I mean, there's confusion about what psychologists do, what the psychiatrist does, or, you know, you know, what, what the scope is, et cetera. So, so that becomes just part of the education that, that is difficult for advocacy purposes because people just don't understand why this happens and why this, why the, why these kind of things don't happen. And, you know, it also it also shows you, I think, the the difficulty that um, regulators have, right? Because this is a group of basically regulators at the state level, and they then have to kind of come in between other parties and help facilitate like communication uh, in an area that they don't have a lot of knowledge in, right? Because like there's just like a couple of people on this panel that like seem to sort of get it, you know, <laughs> so. Um, I think that just sort of gives you a sense of what the landscape is for advocacy. And if you don't understand that landscape, you may get frustrated because you're like, I keep telling people this and it's a great idea and it works really well and it's so good for everybody and it's going to save people money, you know, and all this kind of thing. But you have to understand there's a whole lot more that has to go into the education and the bringing of people together into um, a good working relationship. So anyway, that that's, I think, a good way to level set the uh the circumstance yeah i 100 percent agree i think um education and communication is really important and oftentimes what's missing because then those regulators then create a bill or approve a bill or something without um sometimes some crucial pieces because they don't have the education um and don't get to hear from the people who are doing the work to maybe understand why some piece of legislation isn't working the way that they thought it was, right? Because they make the legislation and they say, okay, go, and then that's it. It's out there and we all have to follow it. There's not a whole lot of follow-up that's happening once the legislation comes out, unless individuals then go and start complaining and advocacy days and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I cringe often while watching the, while watching the video segment and I, uh, like Grace said, encourage individuals to go and, and watch the rest of it. Um, like Neftali gave you some pieces of like the insurance industry comes up just to have them come up and be like, well, I just found out, you know, last month, well, I didn't even know that about it's like y'all are in front of the people that make the decision, but yet there's all of this lack of communication that's already happened. Even, you know, lobbyists, and I love them. We deal with lobbyists. I'm here in DC now we have lobbyists. What they can do is only as good as the information that they have. And so sometimes it's very choppy. And so there's even one point where he's like, well, I don't, I don't know why they're not getting paid. That's just what they told me, right? And it's like, so now he doesn't have the additional information to bring forth that he's being asked. I, yeah, I just, it's so much misinformation. 
um, that it's oftentimes very damaging. And we as a field have not done a good job of positioning ourselves. And, and some of it is that it's new. And I know that's Tali, we've had lots of talks about that, about literally the newness of integrated care as a whole is a huge part to do with it. But in general, uh, we're using terms interchangeably. There's uh, a lot of not straight from the source. It's kind of like, oh, I heard this from somebody who I heard this uh, from somebody. And in general, I'm going to call out all of us mental health providers. There has been a lot of the, a lot of the holdup in integrated care isn't coming from the medical side. A lot of it is coming from mental health professionals who do not want to change the way that they practice and practice in a way that actually gets more out to the masses. Now, there's lots of reasons behind that. It's not because people aren't good people. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation uh, at baseline, but I do think that we have to talk about things in more clear terms as mental health professionals. And I think that we need to uh, recognize that we cannot practice the way that we've been practicing. We will not reach the mass of the people and make the difference that we want to make if we continue doing things the way that we've always done them. Yeah, I think it's a great point because even in this in this uh, segment, you see that that uh, there was so much blurring of ideas and concepts, right? So, so the the situation that was presented, which was interesting to me, was really just a crisis situation, right? It's like someone's in crisis in an exam room, in someone's exam room, and the provider needs someone in there, and then. Uh, somehow that was blurred with uh, the need for this consultation code, right? Um, which, which I think, you know, it's interesting. I don't know New Hampshire law terribly well, but in most states, yes, there may be a crisis consultation code. Most people uh, don't end up using those codes, but it, you could still bill like typically a straight 90832 code or 90834 code for a consultation with, with a patient, right? Um, and so that may actually be an issue with the mental health professionals who are rigidly saying, well, no, we, we need to, this is a crisis consultation. We got to build a crisis code, you know, kind of a thing. So that may be an issue, educational issue on their part. But then the, like part of the conversation blends into the, the guy brings up collaborative care and I'm like, I mean, yes, you may have a psychiatrist that's on call for a crisis, but that's not what collaborative care is, right? I mean, like you'd be enrolling someone in depression care and the psychiatrist will review them when they when it's time for their review, but that's not what that is either, right? Um, and so that there was this all this blurring of kind of the situation circumstance that um, was really frustrating to listen to because then it leaves people feeling even more like, oh, well, this is just a broken system. Right. So I'm wondering, first of all, I want to take a temperature check and then I want to talk about something that I see happening in the clip that we watched and even in our conversation that's happening in our podcast panel right now. But how does it feel? How did you feel watching this clip? How does it feel even to talk about these misconceptions and confusions and barriers that we're facing? Confused, frustrated, a little hopeless. Like if they don't have it figured out and I'm a new learner trying to bring this to my neck of the woods and mm -hmm. I'm not even a behavioral health person, I'm medical. <laughs> what chance in heck do I have of getting everyone to understand, see the shared vision, describe how we bill for it? It feels slim to none shot of making that float, honestly. Yeah, I think uh, cringe. 
is the word I would use. I mean, it just mm -hmm. cringe and a little bit of embarrassment. It's like, you know, and you know, Bridget, to your point, um, yes, integrated care is new-ish, but I've been at this for 22 years and it it feels bad that the conversations, some of them anyway, are still at this level, right? Now, I don't think, to be fair, I don't think every conversation of this kind is at this level at this point. Like there are lots of conversations that are actually at higher levels. We've pointed out in past podcasts how these conversations are now happening at, at higher levels of government, especially at the federal level. But I think this conversation is particularly instructive at how at the very local level, at the very, very local, local levels, a lot of times these conversations are cringe and it makes me feel uh, frustrated and um, yeah, a little bit. I don't know if hopeless is the right word because I'm like an internal optimist, I think, but like, just like, oh man, I mean, there's so much we'd have to unpack to get everybody just level set <laughs> on a basic conversation here. It's like, you got to go back to the basics. Yeah. As, and, as, yeah. as cringy as it was, I was like, well, this is being talked about and I have such I have such a like a low bar of like what folks know that I was like, you know, it wasn't good. I mean, it was cringeworthy. Like, don't get me wrong. But I'm like, hey, at least they wanted a psychologist there. Like, that's like the level that I'm at because, yeah. you know, I say that in some ways when folks come to our internship, I'm like, if they haven't had any integrated care experience, I'm like that. They're, they're in some cases way better off because the amount of unlearning about like that PCBH is superficial. We're not really doing real work. It's not really psychotherapeutic. It's not really X, Y, and Z. Like we spend so much time just having to unlearn like within our own field or that PCBH is one to four visits and it's for mild to moderate problems and all these things that just aren't even true and are not really founded anywhere. So um, I don't know. I, as cringy as it was, I was like, well, it wasn't the worst I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. And I shouldn't say the horde hopeless. I, I think I do identify as optimist like you guys too. I feel like it's the evolution of being okay with the fact that it's a continual education awareness spreading thing and like that me personally I've like accepted that at first it was like how come you guys don't know this and then it's like oh okay this is something we're just going to put on repeat, repeat and talk about and keep talking about teach reteach and trying to be okay with that like a I don't know you guys are the smart psychologists is that like a radical acceptance like I'm just gonna accept it I'm not gonna be able to change the fact that we're gonna have to talk about this and get everybody on the same page I'm gonna try to embrace the fact that we're just meeting people where they are with knowledge and instead of spinning my oils getting frustrated does that make sense yeah it does and I think that yeah, there's room for that all sense. of that I will say I felt pretty defensive you know, when they're saying, well, so you're saying a psychologist is going to tell, like, no, nobody is saying that. And so you're saying that this is going to happen. No, like I felt defensive. This is my field. This is something I care really passionately about. And like, I want to correct all of these things. But then what I saw in that conversation and what I see even happening in our panel is that there are multiple levels of conversation that need to be happening. We're talking about big picture things, but then getting caught up in the details and the nuance of, and oh Lord, if you want to hear some nuance, they're talking about, if you keep listening, they talk about, can we change this word from like this to that? Can we like get some wiggle room in there? And like, I get that that's what policy is. And I get that that's really important because of the implications of those specific wordings. But if we can't agree on the big picture or the details, then we get so caught up in like, 
you know, this big conversation is happening and you are, if you're not watching on YouTube, you can't see, but I'm making this big circle with my hands. It's this big circle. And then we get so fixated on this one little corner of it over here. And then we end up using all of our time arguing and fighting about whether this one thing is right or not. That then the conversation's over, the meeting gets turfed to the next week, the insurance people come and are like, oh, well, that's not exactly how this happened. And so then it undermines all of our credibility as well. And when we're defensive, not to get back to, no, I'm going to get back to you. So my uh, neurobiology passion area of dysregulation that I just keep talking about, the area of our brain that feels the need to protect and that feels angry and feels frustrated and feels like this, I'm being attacked is not the area of our brain that can reason and make decisions and make clear communication. And so we have to recognize that in ourselves and engage in our regulation strategies in the moment to like calm that down so that we can listen to what's actually being said because the message gets crossed. And I mean, this is such a, a, a key crucial example of miscommunications and misinterpretations. And if we cannot get to the heart of what's actually being said so that we can correct that and then pivot back to like what we're actually talking about, then we're not going to get anywhere. But we cannot do that if we are defensive and overwhelmed and in our anger in that moment during that conversation. Bring that to the podcast, y'all. Bring that to CFHA. Bring that to your consultation group and your peers and your people and your team. But don't take that to advocacy and policy conversations because you're not going to be able to connect. So well said. So well said. Yeah. And, and, and it'll also lead to the demonization of your opponent, right? It, it makes it you know, where you're, you're fighting against an opponent instead of trying to create a collaboration, right? And typically insurance companies fall in that category. And I'm going to say thing, I'm going to say something kind of out of both sides of my mouth here. So on the one hand, I think that the structures, the fundamental structures of insurance-based health payment are, uh, have evil in them. Uh, they, they, have, they have systemic issues in them that are are just uh, let, let me use a, a non-moral term right to but it that they, they are not good for the promotion of health in the country right that does not mean that i think that insurers or the people that work at insurance companies are evil or that they're bad or that they're trying to do bad things right you can you can say both those things at the same time so this is a good example of it and i've seen this happen many many times over many situations where a lot of what is happening with uh, uh, an insurance company is simply that they don't have the incentive to, and they often don't have the mechanisms within their organization to adequately enforce rules that they may they themselves may have. And I've seen this at the Medicaid payer level. I've seen this at the commercial level. That's the idea of there's a rule, but you know there's like five layers of bureaucracy managing something. And one little data person who doesn't talk to anybody, nobody talks to them, you know, handling claims and all that kind of thing. And there's not a channel, there's not a pathway to enforce a, a rule. And there's not an incentive to do so because it's not a big deal to them. It's not, it just, there's no real financial or other incentive for them to get this right on any consistent level. And that happens a lot with behavioral health because it's not, not a big ticket item typically. And so, so that thing that we want to see, the payment for the service or whatever, 
on a consistent basis ends up not happening consistently. And then it becomes a situation where literally, literally the main question is between the provider and the payer, who do I talk to, right? That, that becomes the main question. It's like, who do I talk to? And I've had conversations with people at the higher levels of the insurance uh, in an insurance company, and they don't know who to talk to within the organization to get that thing fixed, right? They may want to, they just, they don't quite know how, how to make that happen, right? So, so that becomes the nature of the issue there. When that's the issue, then, then we need to kind of, you know, adopt a collaborative stance and say, all right, well, can we figure this out together? Can we figure out who we need to talk to? Can we figure out and then work at it over months to make sure we work through the organization, the channels, the emails, the, you know, to make sure we finally get to that person who has the power to click, to hit the click button, to turn something on, right? Yeah. Um, that that becomes a more productive way than if you demonize your opponent and and think they're actively against integrated care. Yeah. I think there's a couple yeah. pearls in that and in what we watch too, um, in terms of, you know, when there's not an incentive or when there's a disconnect from what we're asking for and the perceived impact of it, that is where story makes a big difference. So we can feel, I can feel as like a tiny fish in the very big sea. Like somebody else needs to be having these conversations. Somebody else needs to be, you know, doing this work. Who, who am I? Like I'm nobody. But to recognize recognize that as the person doing the work, we're the people with the stories and we're the people that do understand those impacts. And those stories are what is going to, stories and data, the data, spoiler alert, I'm going to say data to you. So he brings a survey and he talks about like what's actually happening for a group of providers, which I think his client might be the New Hampshire Psychological Association. Like I think he's the lobbyist on their behalf is my perception. It, regardless, we can feel like, oh, it's lobbyists that need to do this. But no, we have the stories, we have the data. And not that, you know, when I was saying earlier, you know, put your anger aside for this. Don't lose your passion, though, because we are not cold and disconnected. And we have to come back to, no, this isn't just about dollars and cents. This isn't just about shall or may. And like this very specific wording in a very sterile room in a capital or in um, an executive's office or in, wherever it is. This is about the patients that we're serving every day. So when we take those stories and we take the meaning and, you know, when that doctor in this committee meeting spoke up and said, actually, I have experienced this and here's how it makes a difference to my patients. Intuitively, everyone's like, well, yes, this should be happening. Like that makes so much sense. And so we've got to connect with the stories. We've got to connect with the data, even as we're coming back to that to keep us focused. The stories yeah. is actually what I feel like gives it the power because there's power behind the story. It's no longer than this kind of abstract words on a page in their agenda, like they could then relate it. The stories are actually where the power is. Um, and I oftentimes say policy is practice and practice is policy. And I know a lot of times we have our head down and we're doing the work and, you know, we're plowing through, we're seeing you know, patients and that's what we're doing. We have to take some time to lift up and be able to talk to the people on that. I too don't know New Hampshire rules, right? But go and have a conversation um, with the people on that committee to explain, right? Because then there's some education, information, a story, all those things that you could provide to try to connect the dots, 
where there are these missing pieces and blanks. Um, yeah, I just I believe everybody should be doing some type of advocacy work. You're not the small fish um, in the pond. You're actually a pretty big fish. Without you, things don't keep going. So you actually are a pretty big fish, and sharing your story is the piece that's missing for a lot of individuals on the policymaking level. I can agree with that for our listeners. It's hard for me yeah. to accept that for myself. Oh, 100%, <laughs> right? You got to lead into the whole like, wait, my, my opinion on this, my experience matters. You know, it's something I do. We had a situation like that in Illinois where in 2019, Governor Fritzker signed into law that it must be mandated that Medicaid and all insurers pay for collaborative care codes. So we're like, woohoo, we can finally bill for this, except it wasn't on the fee schedule. And we had so many conversations with people way more powerful and connected, smarter than me. You know, CEOs like, well, it's supposed to be, it's by law. How come it's not turned on? Mm -hmm. Who do you talk to? How do you find that person? Years of that. We just now got to see it on the fee schedule last fall. So it took over two years from when it was mandated by law that, that Medicaid paid that we actually got to bill for it. So, and as much as that was frustrating, when I think back of like, well, what turned the corner? It was actually some collaboration. It was like folks from Advocate Health System outside Chicago. There was a Illinois Hospital Association, Kennedy Forum. We all got on a little conference call and we're like, hey, Medicaid, you know, flip the switch these these codes need to be turned on and it might have just been someone in a, a room somewhere that's like oh okay I didn't know this was supposed to be turned on you know so it was it was hard to connect with that person but I think we did do some good looking around our community our larger community our state and going like oh you all agree this should this is a good thing too so cool so we, I, I think we did find a silver lining there which started out feeling hopeless and like screw it if I can't fix this then <laughs> you know if they can't then there's no hope in heck for me to be able to but when we kind of found our, our colleagues and our um, people in our like-minded, you know, motivations, We're like, oh, maybe we did actually move the needle there. So yeah, I think that's a, a win in the long term. Ain't perfect, but <laughs> it's something. Yeah. I think, I think you have to be a, you have to be a Karen. You know I mean? You have to, you have to learn how to be a Karen. And I, I can say that because my wife's name is Karen. Um, I'm dying over here. A Karen. <laughs> or a Chad. You can be a Chad too. Um, but yeah, maybe not a Chad. Grace is shaking her head. But but definitely Karen. You want to get some stuff done, right? I mean, and and you get stuff 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 done by by saying something. And and it's absolutely true. Uh, I'll give you another story. I think that Illinois story is a great example of that, right? Several years after you thought you won, right? Just to kind of get the procedures in yep. line, right? Yep. And that's that's the important thing to remember about these things. It's people. It's yep. always about people. And so my wife was frustrated about something in the emergency department uh, last year. It's just been a, it's been a you know not a good place. Emergency departments nationally are not really really healthy, and um, it was something related to the state. She literally emailed two or three representatives that day. She is the last person to advocate. She's just a clinician. So she got emails back from like two of their offices and a phone call from one of the representatives, he was driving on the way to his home from the Capitol. And they had like a 45 minute conversation about the issue. Same day, right? So you never know when you make that extension, who you're going to get to, which human being you're going to connect to. And if you're, when I say be a Karen, I mean, be persistent, right? If you're persistent enough as a human being, you're going to eventually get there, right? You, you can outlast the system problem. Yeah, I'm going to pull through some pearls of what I've heard you guys say as we're starting to wrap up this conversation, just in the thinking about time, that advocacy happens at every level. 
that our skills as communicators and collaborators are crucial in this environment, in this conversation, as we're working to regulate ourselves to remember the big picture and the specifics, but also to engage with the stories and the data and persistently connecting to find the people who are the decision makers about these things that make so much of a difference, but sometimes hinge on a word. And that there is power in connection, there's power in persistence, there's power in clarifying our message and being clear about what it is that we're saying and not losing sight of that focus for the nitty gritty details, but being ready to jump back and forth between, well, no, that's not exactly it, but then back to, I will say, I think that's the one thing I felt was missing a little bit from the clip that we saw. Maybe this is the role of, you know, the, the lobbyist that doesn't have all the information, but to clarify and pivot, you know, and, and I tell our residents to do this all the time. When you're talking with a patient who is just not making sense of what you're saying, restate what they said and then pivot back to the question that you actually asked. And this is true, I think, when we're, you know, engaging these conversations too. We can correct a misconception and then redirect the conversation back to where it needs to be, but to engage with curiosity, to engage in good faith, but with persistence and with passion for these things that we believe are so important and that no one is too insignificant. No one is insignificant to do this work. It's happening at every level. It's happening in every system. It's happening in every clinic. It's happening in every state. And we are, I I deeply believe that our members and our listeners are the people who have the voices to affect this change. And so I'm feeling, uh, I'm, I'm trying to shift my frustration and defensiveness into looking for action. And I think that's too a really crucial piece to keeping going. When we sense the injustice, when we recognize systemic inequities, which is a lot of what we are needing to advocate for, that we see that and we we feel the pain of it. We feel maybe the hopelessness of it or the disappointment about the injustices, but we pivot that into finding our path for action. Because if we don't do that, then we're stuck in our hopelessness and we're not helping anybody. And so we have to pivot into finding what is the piece where I can work to affect change because that energizes, that fuels us back. And not in isolation, but in collaboration with each other. That wrapped it up. If anybody has anything they want to add, anything. Isn't Grace missed. awesome? Grace is awesome. She like summarizes things like no one. Drop the mic. Like, get out there and do some stuff. Yeah. Get out there and do it. You know, if that's you know, the I could also say we're rooting for you, New Hampshire. So get yes. this. Right. Yeah. Yes. We're rooting Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Well, I am so pleased to have had our full group here today. Um, and as part of his transition away from us, Deepu has continued to record our closings. And so we are going to listen to a closing from Deepu before we end for the, for the month. A poem called Blessing the Boats by Lucille Clepton in parentheses at St. Mary's. May the tide that is entering even now, the lip of our understanding, carry you out beyond the face of fear. May you kiss the wind, then turn from it, certain that it will love you back. May you open your eyes to water, water waving forever. And may you, in your innocence, sail through this to that.
Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Naftali, Bridget, Monica, and Jen for being here with me. Thank you to all of our listeners, and we'll talk to you again next month.